All right, you've been hearing it for three weeks. If you say you're a Christian but you don't know how to read the Bible, you may not be a Christian. Christians twisting the Bible all over the place, making it say whatever they want, but having no clear understanding of the gospel. Last week, we taught you about the covenant of works. We're going to show you tonight how it helps you to understand the whole Bible. I'm going to teach you a little law gospel hermeneutic. Thanks for joining, sinners and saints. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, vibrant, intellectually rigorous 21st century Christian faith. We're instructing the mind, engaging the heart. This is Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge. We welcome you tonight to Sinners and Saints. I'm Adam Kalustian, pastor of outreach at the Ontario United Reformed Church. Studio tonight with Moses Jambazian, the pastor at the Pasadena United Reformed Church, and John Sattel, pastor at the First United Reformed Church in Chino. And we welcome you tonight to the show. We are talking about the idea when Christians misread the Bible, uh, they may be endangering their very salvation. That is to say, they wouldn't be saved in the first place if they don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. We introduced this topic last week, uh, or this this theme in the Scripture, this this doctrine called the covenant of works, the idea that uh, Adam failed in his obedience and we failed in Adam, and that as Christians, Christ prevailed for us. He obeyed God perfectly, we're credited with his righteousness, our sins go on him, salvation is completely outside of us, it's nothing that we do, nothing that we contribute uh, to. What we're saying tonight is that Understanding this two-atom scheme opens up all of the Scripture, and now we have a grid uh, that we can put over the Bible in order to understand it. That's right, putting a grid over the Bible so that we can understand it. Now, you know what people are going to say First of all, exactly. They're going to say, well, my pastor said you should never use a grid because that's how we all get goofed up. That's how we end up with all these doctrines that divide everybody. It's because everybody's imposing their own little grid on the Bible. The Bible only. No grids. No grid. No creeds. None of that. But we're saying tonight we You need a grid. We must put a grid on the Bible. You better defend that. You got <laughs> to have a grid. You better yeah, well, defend it. It's pretty easy to defend as long as you just look at how the New Testament apostles are doing it. They are writing out things and they are quoting things in Scripture from the Old Testament and they are laying it out for you saying, here's what it said, here's the fulfillment, promise and fulfillment throughout the whole thing. And of course, the whole promise and fulfillment goes with the fact that the promise is part of the gospel. The promise is God promising something that he will do of which you will be the beneficial recipient well, first of all, you're a goofball if you think that it's possible to read anything without having some kind of pre-understanding or some grid that you are imposing on whatever you're reading. I mean, the the secular world, secular scholars kind of laugh at fundamentalist Christians when they say, that's oh, the Bible only. I don't impose any pre-understandings when I come to read it. I mean, that's silly. Everybody does. What we want to point out to you tonight is the Bible itself interprets itself. The, the Bible yeah. gives us the grid through which we must read the Bible. That's the key. It's not that uh, grids are good. Okay. We don't want to just sit there and have all kinds of grids. We would agree with that. But it doesn't mean a grid or the grid is not it is not the right thing. You need to have the grid. The Bible has its own grid. And if you don't read the Bible with that grid in mind, 
you will constantly confuse law and gospel. You will make a mess of your understanding of salvation, and you'll end up saying that I'm somehow saved by my faith and my obedience and my works and somehow earning God's favor, yet it's all by grace. And you end up totally confused if you don't have the grid the Bible uses. The historic Christian church called this using the analogy of faith. In other words, using Scripture to interpret the Scripture. Everybody has a grid. There are some bad grids and there are good grids. The good grids come from Scripture itself. Now, just in case you think we're even making this idea up that you have to impose a grid on the Scripture, no, we're not. It's it's done clearly by the apostles. I think of Galatians 3 and the Apostle Paul, verses 10 through 14. What he does is he goes back and he's reading the Scripture. Now, again, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so this is no human opinion. He's going back and quoting verses from the Old Testament, and he's explaining and interpreting them. He himself is setting up a grid for us, and we must interpret these passages and all the passages in the Scripture the same way that he's instructing us to do it. I'll just read verse 10. For as many as are of works of the law are under the curse. That's Paul's explanation of the verse that he then quotes. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And if you read on through those next few verses, you'll see Paul is taking Scripture— He's putting a grid on it. He's explaining it and interpreting it by the Holy Spirit. We have to understand that grid, and we have to use the same grid when we interpret the Scriptures. Well, there's another grid. that Not another grid. There's another text which illustrates the same uh, use of the grid by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10. And he says in verse 5, Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. Okay? And then he goes, what is that righteousness? The man who does these things shall live by them. He quotes right out of the law, Leviticus 18.5, and he categorizes that verse as law. And now he contrasts law here with gospel or grace when he says in verse 6, the righteousness that is by faith says, don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. And he goes on to talk about the righteousness that is by faith is accepting Christ by faith unto salvation. So he compares and contrasts two absolute categories, law and gospel. Also in Galatians 3, if you continue on, he contrasts law against the promise, which is another word that we use for the gospel. And so that is the grid that we should be using. Law is that which God commands man to do. Promise or gospel is that which God commits himself to do. And that's what we have to see is that there are categories that have to be understood correctly so that you do not start confusing salvation and grace with law. Okay. Let me give you another example of where this works out. Uh, it's in the actual proclamation of the gospel itself, and people confuse this all the time. When the apostles say, repent and believe, often people will say, that's gospel. Well, that's not gospel. Anytime the Word of God tells me to do something that I can't perform in my own sinful condition, that's law. Gospel is God promising me, it's grace, it's him doing in me what I couldn't perform myself. All right, let's fill in the blanks here. What we are introducing to you tonight is crucial. you got to understand the law, what we're going to call the law-gospel grid, or the law-gospel hermeneutic, the law-gospel way of reading the Bible. Now, we're saying that if you understand the covenant of works, you understand that you have sinned in your first father, Adam, and that Christ has saved his people completely by his grace, you have to read the rest of the Bible in those categories. The categories of law, that means the death you have in Adam, because you you are not uh, obedient to the commandments of God, like your first father, and gospel, 
what Christ has done for you. you got to understand the whole Scripture in that way. Otherwise, you'll be twisting it. We'll give you examples of twisting it. We'll also help you work through some of the stickier passages when we come back to Sinners and Saints. You're listening to Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge, on 99.5 FM, KKLA, the Spirit of Los Angeles. Are you looking for a church where you don't have to sit there and be cynical and feel so negative about what you're hearing week by week? Do you desire to weekly be refreshed by the preaching of God's Word in truth and honor? Do you want to be freed to sing and pray to Him with your whole heart? Hi, I'm Pastor Adam Kalustian, co-host of Sinners and Saints and pastor of outreach at the Ontario United Reformed Church. We take our calling very seriously at the Ontario URC to preach the Word faithfully and to strive to run our church according to the Scripture alone. Now we want to show you that, and so we invite you to join us. I'm telling you, your Christian life will be revitalized when you can unite yourself with a family of believers who are together in a common confession of God's triumphant grace in their lives. We worship Sundays at 10 a.m. and 5 p.m. To get to our church, take the Euclid Avenue exit off the 60 freeway and go north. Make a right on Philadelphia Street, and you'll see us on the left-hand side. Find us on the web at urcsocal.org. That's the Ontario United Reformed Church, 866-99-UNITED. This is Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge. We do welcome you back to Sinners and Saints tonight. We're talking about how Christians read the Bible wrong, professing Christians read the Bible wrong, and therefore endanger their very salvation. We've explained that you have to see the covenant of works in the Scripture, and we're talking tonight about uh, imposing the Bible's grid, uh, the law-gospel hermeneutic on the Bible so that you can understand it. Maybe it'll help you to get your mind around this a little bit if we uh, introduce our segment tonight of... And our bonehead of the day is going to give us an example of how failing to put the proper grid on the Scripture will find you basically miserably interpreting and and actually twisting a, a very important text. John, what do you got for us? Yeah, it is a quote by John MacArthur, and he is commenting very specifically about Matthew 19, verse 21. And you'll remember, this is the passage of the rich young ruler, the ultimate seeker, the kind of guy that everybody would want in their church, every pastor would want to have a conversation with, a guy who just is basically saying, uh, what is the gospel? What do I do to be saved? He's interested. He, he wants to know what the truth is. And uh, Jesus tells him to keep the commandments. He said, oh, I did all those things. And then he says in verse 21, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. Now, this is very interesting now. When MacArthur turns this verse and he comments on it, he says, what kind of evangelism is this? Jesus would have failed personal evangelism class in almost every Bible college or seminary I know. He gave a message of works, and this point did not even mention faith or the facts of redemption. In other words, what he's doing is he's saying Jesus is giving the gospel to this young seeker. Do this and live. Sell all you have. Yeah, he's basically saying Jesus' answer for salvation is the preaching of works. Oh. This is what makes him our bonehead of the day. 
to take a, a beautiful gospel text and turn it into works. Now, we better explain how this text would be properly understood. Now, remember, remember our point. If you understand that Adam failed and that we all died in Adam because of Adam's failure to obey the law of God, and then Christ prevailed for his people, then we can understand this story and really what Christ is is saying to this rich young ruler. Yeah, Christ is not saying that sacrifice is the means of justification. In other words, give up everything and do this outlandish law work and you're going to be saved. God does not want you to give any sacrifices to him in order to be saved. Jesus is the sacrifice for your salvation here. Well, again, so how do we understand this text, guys? I mean, let's just not uh, pick on the bonehead of the day, although he's very worthy, but uh, how do we understand this text? The context has to be understood, and the context is that Jesus is talking about the end of the Old Covenant. The section on divorce he's just referred to in Matthew 19 is explaining that once the wife has failed by committing adultery, which is Israel, that God is going to divorce and marry another, and he will never marry the Old Covenant people again. Here comes someone from the Old Covenant who is trying to be righteous in accordance with the works of the law. And Jesus is telling him, well, you'd better be perfect then. And that lack of perfection is what's condemning Israel. It's what's going to condemn this man. The whole point is you reason from the reaction of the rich man. When the young man heard that saying, verse 22, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Basically what Jesus is doing by asking him to give up everything he has and give it to the poor is showing him that it is impossible for him to do anything. This was his original question. Verse 16, one came and said to him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And Jesus is answering that question by saying, I'll show you. The answer is nothing. And I'll prove it to you by asking you to give up something that is dear to you. He won't do it. The law is being preached by Christ, not the gospel. Right, and what does the law says? If you do this, you will live. If you keep all things which are written in the book of the law to do them, you'll be blessed. But it also says, cursed is everyone who continues not in all the things which are written in the book of the law. And he's showing this guy that by nature he's cursed and that he's unable to do any good thing. Then the hope is that this guy will recognize that and then cast himself on the sacrifice of Christ who will go to the cross. But he's placing this man back in the covenant of works. He's saying, earn your salvation. Er, earn, earn, Earn God's blessing. Well, the man himself is coming and saying, what must I do? And Jesus tells him everything perfectly all the time without exception. And that is the correct biblical answer to what you have to do. So when MacArthur interprets this as, no, it's really something achievable, this is an absolute disaster because then either people are completely despaired and they have they look at their life and they say, look, there's no way I can fulfill the requirements of God's law in order to get myself right with him. Or on the other hand, and this is typical of of, uh, of a response to this kind of preaching, they say, oh, you know what? Actually, I am pretty self-sacrificing. Right. I pretty much do keep the commandments of God. And I, you know what? I do give a lot of my money to the poor, and I think that will stand up before God. And that is just that is just atrocious, it's obnoxious, and it's arrogant. And our point is, it's a perversion of the Scripture. You have to read it with the law gospel hermeneutic, not because we're imposing it, but because the Bible imposes that hermeneutic on itself. Well, something here that puzzles me, too, is you think of the Apostle Paul. What if this guy had been the Apostle Paul? And some people have speculated that it was. But what if it had been? What's Jesus' message to him? Be good. 
Well, what did the Apostle Paul think of himself? I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I, I went beyond all of my brethren in things pertaining to the law. And yet, as he becomes, in his justification, he realizes that his righteousness were as filthy rags. There was nothing. The gospel would not have been attractive to Paul if he thought it was a works righteousness uh, message. Now, do you see the importance of putting the biblical grid on all of the Scripture so that you may understand it. When we come back, get your Bibles out. We're going to go over some supposed problem texts that seem to contradict this clear difference between law and gospel. Come back to Sinners and Saints. Instructing the mind, engaging the heart. This is Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge. Hi, this is Reverend John Sautel, co-host of Sinners and Saints and pastor of Congregational Life and Outreach at First United Reformed Church of Chino. Tonight, I want to invite you to come worship with us. Let me tell you a little bit about First United Reformed Church. We are a Protestant, Bible-based, family-oriented church committed to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are located just off the 60 Freeway at Mountain Avenue in Chino. We worship at 10 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. every Sunday. Or beginning on Wednesday, September the 10th, come visit us for Family Night, which offers Bible studies and programs for the whole family. If you'd like more information about our church, give us a call at 866-99-UNITED. That's 866-99-UNITED. Reformation Radio, Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge. Welcome back to Sinners and Saints. Adam Kalustian, Pastor of Outreach at the Ontario United Reformed Church, here with my co-host, Moses Jambazian, Pastor at the Pasadena United Reformed Church, and John Sattel, Pastor of Outreach at the First United Reformed Church in Chino. Do get in touch with us, 866-99-UNITED. We want to hear from you. We want to get to know you. We want to serve you want you to glorify God uh, with us in a local church. Now listen, we're talking about this law-gospel hermeneutic uh, that we read everything in the Bible either as a commandment that we are to keep, and of course learning from there that we failed in our first father Adam, or reading that God, what God has promised us in Christ, and that's something completely outside of ourselves, his perfect righteousness, what he did for us by which we're saved. But there are some of these problem texts that seem to mix like law and grace or mix grace and works. I think of James 2, for instance. How do we deal with James 2? Right. What we've been arguing is that we're justified by faith alone apart from any works that we can do. And then you come to James chapter 2, and a curveball gets thrown at you, and you're not sure what to do. Now do you have to combine law and gospel somehow in uneasy tension in order to really understand salvation correctly. Here's what James says, Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? He says, You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And then verse 24, here's the kicker. You see a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. And that ought to make your jaw drop and your heart sink, because here you're sitting here thinking that you've understood justification uh, correctly when you believe that it's by faith alone and not works. And then the Bible, your authoritative standard says, well, do you see it's not by faith alone but works also? Well, let's face it, you know, 
that is a real apparent problem because if if that's what James is saying and it's true what we said from Romans 5 then we have a contradiction in the Bible folks and you might as well flush your whole understanding of eternal life down the toilet an apparent problem I say how do we <laughs> understand James 2 well, we always try to understand things in light of who they are written to. What is the author trying to say, and what is he actually saying? James is writing to a group of believers who are misunderstanding the nature of their salvation, and there are hypocrites present in the true church, which is something that we've always known. And here the word justification is being used in an alternate sense of vindication. Your faith is vindicated by your works. Your faith is made apparent by the works that you perform. And so the one who says, I have faith and yet has none of the fruits of the Spirit, none of the things listed in Galatians 5 of love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, then we would say that you have a dead faith, a non-existent faith, one that you call faith, but we would call nothing. And so I think it's that context that James is speaking. Yeah, this is a, a very much of a problem text, and there's two ways to read it. You can say, James and Paul are hopelessly irreconcilable, and by the way, there's a growing segment of scholars in the church who are willing to accept that proposition, say there are all kinds of contradictions in the Bible, and true faith just accepts those. Which or you is, say there's some way to reconcile them. It, it, you can look at context, as Moses is saying. You can also uh, and see that what's going on here in the audience is they're hypocrites. And that's, that's certainly a part of the interpretation as well, but there's also another factor in there. Look at the example in Abraham's life that, that James cites. It is years and years and years after Genesis 15 when God had already accounted him or credited righteousness to him. It's after his justification. It's Genesis 22. It's Isaac being offered up on the altar. Abraham's not being re-justified. Abraham is now demonstrating that the faith which he exercised in Genesis 15, which is at the foundation of his justification, is now being demonstrated as a true faith when he trusts God's promise, which seemed to him absolutely crazy that he should offer up the son of promise, demonstrating true faith. That's the context. Now, see, it's real easy if you don't have a clear understanding of the covenant of works, if you don't approach the Scripture with its own law-gospel hermeneutic that it teaches you to have, that when you come across a text like James 2, it would be very easy for you to have your faith shaken, and you wouldn't know how to interpret it, and you might get spun around and caught up in some weird heresy. I mean, you know, maybe it'd be helpful for us to contrast some of the other views in the so-called, you know, Christian church historically of justification. I think of the Roman Catholic view. This is one of their uh, classic proof texts, supposedly, for uh, what we would call a mix of grace and works in their understanding of true faith. Yeah, because to them, salvation can only be given. You can only be justified when you are actually made righteous from within. And so it would be a works righteousness. You have to become holy for God to declare you holy, because otherwise they would say justification is a legal fiction and you make God to be a liar, which of course is not true. We say that God sees you or judges you in Christ and calls you just because Christ is your representative, not because you're holy in yourself and God is now wrong. Right. It's Christ's alien, uh, uh, Christ's righteousness, which is outside of you, we call it an alien righteousness that is credited to you so that when he looks at you, 
he rewards you for the works of Christ. But this is amazing. It's not just Roman Catholic. I mean, so many people say, oh, I'm not Roman Catholic. I'm an evangelical. I'm a Christian. They have a Roman Catholic doctrine of salvation. Yeah, but when you ask them why they're being saved, they say, well, you know, God is renewing me day by day. But that's heresy. I'm sanctified. I read my Bible. I go to church. Yeah, I'm, you know what they talk, the first thing they say is, I'm not the same way that I was before I got saved. Now I'm different. God, that you're not. (laughs) That's, but that's not, that's that's not not the the basis of your salvation. This is the unbelievable thing. People think because they've had a change in their life, they're saved. That is not why a person is saved. The person is saved because God sees them in Christ. You know, another point I wanted to just point out quickly. If you don't understand this, there's no difference in what you believe about salvation, you from a Mormon, you from a Jehovah's Witness or whatever. There's great life changes in all kinds of people, even atheists. But that's not what gets you, you right get with God. life change at AA. That's right. Alcoholics not you can go anywhere to get a, a a life program. That happens in all kinds of circles, but it doesn't make you right with God. You're justified freely by God's grace through Christ. You must see that in the covenant of works. You must uh, impose the law gospel hermeneutic as the scripture imposes it on itself so you can have assurance in this. Read the Bible right so you'll be confident in the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us tonight on Sinners and Saints. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge. For more information, call 866-99-UNITED or log on to the web at urcsocal.org. That's 866-99-UNITED. Worldly cares, confusing philosophies, bad experiences with churches. So much distracts us and keeps us away from our highest calling, to love and glorify God with all that we say, do, and think. Set aside the cares of the world. Come to church to worship God with your whole heart, soul, and mind. Hear the word of God expounded by his ministers. Receive the comfort of his gospel. Be assured that his promise is true. Jesus was sent into the world to save sinners and reconcile God to man. Hello, I'm Rev. Moses Jambazian. Come and worship the one true God at the Pasadena United Reformed Church. We worship Sundays at 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. at 226 West Colorado Boulevard in the city of Arcadia. From the 210 freeway, take the Santa Anita exit and go south. Turn right on Colorado and proceed one half mile. We meet in the Wedding Chapel just west of the main building. Call us at 866-99-UNITED. That's 866-99-UNITED or visit us at urcsocal.org.